have a healthy sunburn today. If you're like me, you finally have conceded that winter is gone. Yeah, I took down my Christmas lights but today, yesterday and put away my snowblower. Wait till next December. But uh, this week I was online just looking at the news and I noticed an interesting story. Actually, it was a story about a story. It was an interview with comedian and entertainer Chris Rock. And it's tragic to read about his divorce to his wife of 10 years and they have two daughters together. But as he was sharing about his life, I appreciated his candor, his self-awareness even. As he talked about that divorce, he had admitted that his own marital infidelity, he had three affairs in that time, had been the main main contributor to the demise of his marriage. And he he said, basically, I had become entitled. I I believe because I was bringing in, you know, truckloads of money, I was a breadwinner, I was entitled to these relationships. He, you know, basically kind of in retrospect said, you know, that actually brought out the worst in me. And so, I again, I don't celebrate any man's demise of his marriage. But it is a, a good illustration of how infidelity in a relationship can be destructive to that relationship, especially in marriage. And it is true even with our relationship with Christ. And if you've been with us in our series through 1 Corinthians, and if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack them open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you've seen this Corinthian church struggling, struggling in in areas of fidelity to God, and one of which is in the area of food sacrifice to idols. You see, this is a very pagan society, and they want to partake of these kind of pagan festivals where Probably some pretty good food is being put out, being sacrificed to idols, and they want to do so because they know that this is not a real God that's being worshipped, as chapter 8, verses uh, 4 through 6 talk about. There's only one God, and that's true enough, but it is detrimental to many of these people who've come out of this pagan background. In fact, that knowledge is hurting them. Moreover, there's a greater spiritual reality that they're not acknowledging that ultimately it's a manifestation of their spiritual infidelity towards God. And Paul sought to illustrate this last week as we started this chapter, looking back at the people of Israel, a people who God rescued out of the slavery, a bondage of slavery in Egypt. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He guided them into the desert, provided nourishment for them, food and water in a place there was none, and he revealed himself for who he was. They were God's special, peculiar people. And how did they respond? With idolatry, with sexual infidelity, with discontentment and rebellion. And there were sad consequences. They could not enter the promised land, which they were promised. The whole generation died, and then the next generation would enter. So these are lessons to be learned from God's people in the past, and now Paul brings it into the present. So if you would you if you please read with me if you have your Bible, we're going to pick it up at verse 14 of chapter 10 and and finish out here at verse 22. So he says, "Therefore, my dear friends, 
free from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we partake of one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifice participate in the altar? Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. The sacrifices of the pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot... Let's see... And you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part of both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and look in God's word. Again, Lord, this word is your word. It is living active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, would you do your surgery in our hearts to show us areas where we are being unfaithful to you. So open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Give us gratitude. and Use this word to make us people who are more like Jesus. Lord Jesus, it is indeed in your name I pray these things. Amen. Again, Paul is addressing the issue of food offered to idols. Chapter 8, he was dealing with how that was affecting others who had come out of that background, how it was detrimental, it was causing them to stumble. But now he's dealing with how those who are actually eating food to idols how it affects them who participate. So Paul renders a judgment here. What is to be done? Verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Paul's big point. This is what he's going to illustrate throughout the rest of this passage. Flee from idolatry. Leave it. Run away. Don't stand there. Don't equivocate. Don't deliberate. Don't hang around to see what happens. Don't make a list of the pros and the cons. When it comes to idolatry, run away. Get away as far as you can. Verse 13, previously, Paul had explained the faithfulness of God in the midst of a temptation. That God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to endure. But with that temptation, will provide a way of escape. Also, that you may be able to endure it. The way of escape is fleeing, running away. Don't stick around to find out what happens. That's a great policy with temptation in general. If you can, flee from it. Flee from it. You know, in in so many other areas, Paul will will instruct his uh, protege, Timothy, to flee from youthful lusts. To talk about fleeing from guilt also, which is considered, um, from greed, I should say, which is also considered idolatry. 
But although Paul's, you know, his command is forceful, he's saying, flee, flee, get out of here, flee. It's done with a loving heart, a heart of compassion. Notice that he calls them dear friends. Dear friends. Literally, beloved. You're my beloved. Now that's significant, especially if you've been tracking with this letter. Because Paul, what he's been experiencing from this church, is less than loving. Is less than beloved behavior. He's been much maligned, much questioned, gone through much frustration. It's easy for him, it'd be easy for him to say, Come on, you clowns. Run away. What are you thinking? No. He says, you're my beloved. He's going to say that three times in this letter. You see, the love of Christ for these people who have been unkind to him prevails. The love of Christ, which he'll talk about a little bit later in chapter 13, where it says that love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Paul had the heart of Christ for a church that wasn't very grateful for him. And in a non-patronizing way, Paul appeals to them in verse 15 and says, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves. Look, God has given you some sense. He's given you some wisdom to evaluate fairly what I'm saying. Think about this. It's as though the words of Isaiah are coming back where God says to his people, come, let us reason together, says the Lord in chapter 1, verse 18. Flee idolatry. Flee idolatry because of your communion with Christ. Verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We, who are many, are one body. For we all share of one loaf. What Paul is talking about is what we commonly call the Lord's Supper. We're set up to celebrate here at the end of this service is also called the communion, which has to do with having fellowship with God and with each other. It's also called the Eucharist in some some settings, which is Greek for thanks to give thanks. But it's the meal that Jesus celebrated as the Passover for his followers to do in remembrance of him. And by the way, to share a meal with somebody is to demonstrate that you accept them. Jesus, in giving this meal, giving of his body, his blood, is saying, I am accepting you. He didn't specify how often. Some churches, like us, celebrate once a month. Some churches celebrate every week. Some churches only celebrate once a year. But he talks about, in verse 16, a cup of thanksgiving, literally a cup of blessing, which is a participation a fellowship, if you will, it's the word we get, it's called koinonia, in the blood of Christ. The shed blood of Christ that he said is the new covenant in his blood, which the benefits are for forgiveness of sins, 
a righteousness because of our faith in Christ, adoption as God's children, and so much more, eternal life. The word translated fellowship or participation here is more than just agreeing on the same thing or even doing the same thing, but a spiritual interaction, a familiar bond that we now have with Christ through faith and a familiar bond now we have with one another. In a sense, Jesus is actually present with those participating by his Holy Spirit. As we remember, as we celebrate, as we meditate on what Jesus did on shedding his blood. Similarly, in verse 17, Paul mentions the bread, which represents Christ's body, that Jesus willingly offered up to take upon himself the wrath of God. Jesus' physical body was an atoning sacrifice. And when we eat that bread, we remember what he gave of himself. We remember that his suffering was very real. And there is a fellowship taking part here. But this bread has a new meaning. This body has a new meaning. Because Jesus, he did. He offered up his body. Physical nails went through his hands, his feet, a spear, thorns on his head. That was very real. But there's a new reality here. As he offers up his body, it makes us who believe in him one body together. Of which Jesus is the head. And we're going to talk about that when we get to chapter 12. But when we partake of his body, he makes us one in body. So there's a mystery, if you will, that takes place. Because we partake in one loaf, remembering the body of Jesus Christ, we become one body. We take him in, per se. And we're made a part of, a, of his body altogether. We share in one loaf. Verse 17, again, because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share in one loaf. So there's an aspect of we have fellowship with Jesus, remembering what he has done. We also have fellowship with one another. Because you and I are now members of one body together. And so it matters. It matters how we interact with each other. It's not just about Jesus and you. It's about Jesus and the Jesus and you and Jesus and me and how we interact together. That's part of the communion that takes place. The fellowship, if you will. But again, Paul is driving this point home. We are partaking, in essence, of a sacred meal. A sacred meal participating with Christ, interaction with our Savior and Lord, with His body and with one another. So as, since this is a sacred meal, we need to understand that participation is partaking. Look at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Paul is looking back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. An example of what takes place when food is offered to a God. In this case, in the sacrificial system, it's the living God. It's all about engaging God. And so when the priest, who was the only one who could offer the sacrifice, would 
kill the animal, remove all the fat and the entrails, and burn it on the altar, sprinkle the blood on the altar. And then he would actually roast some of the meat, and then he'd eat it. He would eat it. That was part of what would happen. If you look at Leviticus 6 and 7, if you want to do a little homework a little bit later today, the only sacrifice that the priest did not eat of was the whole burnt offering where the whole thing is consumed. But every other sacrifice, whether it was a grain offering, sin offering, guilt offering, fellowship offerings, the priest would eat it. He would eat it in the precincts of the temple or the, or the tabernacle, but he would eat of it. But even those for whom actually supplied the sacrifice, for those whom the priest would, would offer it for, even they would get to eat part of the sacrifice at certain points, especially like during sacrifices of Thanksgiving or the tithe. This is just an, in, an instance of illustrating this in Deuteronomy 14.23. Talk about the tithe. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, your olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and the flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for your name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. That's what's taking, that's what's taking place in the beginning of 1 Samuel as, as Hannah and um, her husband are offering sacrifices and the whole family eats together. But the bottom line is part of worship, at least in these sacrifices to the gods, is actually a participation of worship of those gods. You're partaking of that altar. You're partaking in worship of the particular God you're eating before. And so you should flee idolatry because you should not dine with demons. As he says in verse 19, do I then mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of the pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate, to be participants with demons. Again, Paul agrees theologically, chapter four, chapter eight, verse four, that these idols are not really gods. The Old Testament affirms this. Where Isaiah says, the Lord says, chapter 45, verse uh, 5, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. But that does not mean there isn't a spiritual presence behind these idols. He says in verse 20, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And actually, what Paul's quoting there is, the Greek version of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, where the people of Israel were actually sacrificing to these demons as they were being led astray. But this has been an issue since the beginning. Genesis 3, where Satan appears as a serpent. He's tempting God's people to put their faith, to put their hope, to put their trust, to put their affection in anything or anyone else except God. And that is idolatry. He wants to rob God of glory. And Satan, he doesn't act alone. He's got a whole 
army of fallen angels called demons. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, where a third of them are swept to the earth. They're by no means a match for the living God, but nevertheless they are real spiritual beings and they want to inflict real spiritual harm and there's a real spiritual conflict. Paul will write to his letter to the Ephesians, chapter, chapter 6, verse 12. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I'm not looking to go make this a sermon about spiritual warfare per se, but again, I just want to acknowledge that there's a spiritual enemy who seeks to destroy you because you're made in the image of God. And one of the ways the enemy tries to trip us up is to deceive us. To have us look at something else or put our trust in someone or something else than God. And he'll do it in sneaky ways. The way he was doing it with the first the Corinthians was through appealing to their intellect. Look, these aren't real gods. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? You can partake of this. The problem was the people of God are now participating in something where they're giving glory and honor and worship to something that really has a source that's demonic, that are created things, false gods, robbing God of his glory, and even worse, done at the hand of those who say that they are Christ's followers, people that have been saved from this blindness, that have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Very subtle. Again, Paul is seeking to shine a light on this. That God's glory might not be robbed of him. And that God's people would not be in error. They fell into spiritual adultery spiritual infidelity. Now, we may look at this and kind of go, that's so foreign. I mean, we don't have shrines here where, you know, where there's a smorgasbord and we want to go eat of that, right? It's just, it's just not what we deal with here. But, you know, I think some of that is still alive and well in, in the world today. In the developing world, it's what we call syncretism. It's where people who come from a background of worshiping gods or their ancestors, you know, they hear about Jesus, they're excited, so they just add that in, right? Because we're going to worship Jesus and our ancestors. We're going to worship Jesus and the local deity. That might be true in Angola, I'm not sure. Bob is shaking his head, yeah. So that's going to be something to deal with there. It's true when our team goes to Haiti, the whole issue of voodoo. In the Western world, our problem is probably not that type of syncretism or idolatry. It's, it's pluralism. It's where we say, hey, hey, all roads lead to God. We're, dem- we're a democracy, right? It's all equal. It's all good. No, it's not. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And I'm not saying that in Western arrogance. I am saying that because Jesus is the only God who sacrifices himself, rises from the dead, and says, I've come to redeem you. 
He's the only God who does that. And there are all sorts of forms of idolatry. Again, idolatry is something that will lead you astray. That you would give your love, your devotion, your adoration, your loyalty, your obedience to anyone except God. You were to flee idolatry. Flee idolatry because of godly jealousy. Look at verse 21. It says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You can't have it both ways. You can't worship demons and participate in their celebrations and the celebration of Christ. And just as with the sad story I opened with about Chris Rock, you can't have mistresses alongside and have a successful marriage with your wife. It doesn't work like that. It causes jealousy. And God says, I am a jealous God. Because I'm a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 9, quoting actually Exodus 25, says, You shall not bow down before them, talking about idols or other gods, or worship them. For I, the Lord, am, for I, the, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and, third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And oftentimes we look at jealousy like, well, isn't that problematic. I mean, isn't, isn't jealousy something we want to avoid? Because love is not jealous, right? We're going to read about that when we get to chapter 13. Let me submit that there is a godly, there is a right jealousy. God is right in his jealousy. Because number one, he is the one who made us. He is the one who made us. We are made in His image. He is the one who sustains us. The very breath in our lungs, the food that we eat. He's holding us together, it says in, in Colossians. He also sent His Son at the cost of His very life. He suffered the punishment of God's wrath. God says, you're mine. I made you. I loved you. I'm redeeming you. It's wrong for any other to receive that devotion. That's why God can easily say, you to love me with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. God doesn't have an ego problem. He's just trying to point us to the fact that he is the one that's worth fully loving with everything we have. We need to know that. So when we're betraying that, he is right in being jealous. Let me tell you, if any of you has a spouse who's out there giving their affection to another, who's having an affair, who's giving credit to this illicit lover for what you supply, what you give, what you bring to the relationship, giving their love and devotion, their time, energy to anyone else, you have a right to be jealous. Be careful what you do with that jealousy, but you have a right to be jealous. That is wrong. And God, even more so, 
God even more so has a right to be jealous. Are we giving ourselves to other lovers, if you will? And here's the other, the flip side of this. God is jealous because of the negative impact it has on his beloved. Because of the negative impact it has on his beloved. Jeremiah 44, 8 says, Why arouse my anger with what your hands have made, burning incense to other gods in Egypt, where you have come to live? Will you destroy yourselves and make yourselves a curse, an object of reproach among all the nations? Why are you destroying yourself and following these other gods, these other lovers? I think it's it's very similar to many of us who have loved ones who are caught up in addiction. It's taking them down a path of destruction and we see it and we love them and we just want to shake them. What are you doing to yourself? What are you doing to us? We see what it's doing to them. And we're jealous because it is destroying that love. Jesus came that we might be set free, not that we might be in more bondage. Amen. Then there's the idolatry of self-reliance. This is probably the original idolatry, right? God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because, you know, if you in that moment when you do, then you'll be like God. There's the idolatry there. We want to be our own savior. We want to rely on our own power. We want to be our own standard. But Paul asks the questions, are we stronger than he? The answer is no. The answer is no. We need to flee idolatry. And again, that doesn't manifest itself like it did in Corinth. But it's out there. Other lovers would seek to take our affection away from God. At the end of the day, God offers his love at a table of salvation. A table where he has given himself willingly. And he invites us into fellowship with him and with each other. It is a beautiful thing. But I, I do want to ask this question. Is there another to whom you're giving your love, your attention, your time, your devotion, your energy, your trust, that is making God jealous? I want to encourage you to repent, to ask forgiveness for that. Turn back to your first love. Because we want to partake of that table of salvation today. Again, I ask you, of whose table are you partaking? Let it be the Lord's and the Lord's alone. So within that, we're going to turn our attention towards the Lord's Supper today. If you've not been here, or you're not familiar with Berea, and we practice what we, we call open communion. That means if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome.